back in early February, I, I, I sensed that as we were just beginning our month of mission, that at the end of the month, we should talk about Sabbath, Sabbath rest. Um, and I had no idea that one week would turn into three, and I also had no idea how timely today's message would be. We go through periods at our church, and this is just one of those times a lot of people, a lot of people are struggling with medical issues, uh, serious medical issues. I've got a few of my own. They're not that serious. Um, Andy Bowman just asked me, sure, it's not schizophrenia. I said, does it have to be either or? It could be both and, you know. Um, it's, we are, as a church, though, we're feeling the burden. Wednesday night at our prayer time, our leadership, our team leadership meeting, usually when we think about our mission, we just stopped and prayed for, for the people who were hurting. And, and some of this is starting to, to, to drag on for a lot of people. And so our time this morning hopefully will be an encouragement uh, to you. But it's not, it's not easy encouragement. And I think you'll know that'll make sense a little bit later. It's it's encouragement, but it's encouragement that has to be embraced, has to be received as from the Lord. If you've been here for any length of time, I assume that you know that I generally begin a message with an illustration or uh, um, a, a question or even an activity like last week's minute of silence. I think the only thing, it should have been two or three minutes of silence instead of one. We were just getting into the groove. Man, it's the quietest I've ever heard this place last week when we did that. Just a minute of silence to, to reflect on, on, on what Sabbath rest can do for us. Uh, the intention uh, is of, of these illustrations is to lay a foundation for the message, um, to, to, to help bring greater understanding ultimately to the text, to get our minds going in a certain direction so that the Word speaks to us and, and fills in some of the questions that we may have about life. And that can be a backwards way of doing it. The Scripture is what informs us about life. But it's only because I know where we're going that I, that I do that. This morning, I want to begin with an explanation. For the last two weeks, we have been talking about Sabbath rest, and, and then this morning, this, this, this last of three sermons that really was supposed to be one sermon, I've been told that there's a little bit of confusion about the Sabbath, and, and, and that's not surprising at all. I mean, I, when I started thinking about this, I clearly knew there was going to be confusion. Now, wait a minute. I clearly knew there was going to be confusion. That doesn't... I, I, I sensed that there would be confusion about this topics. One of the questions that has indicated a little bit of, uh, of uh, just sort of a question as to why have we chosen these particular three uh, benefits of Sabbath rest these last two weeks? Um, just so you'll recall what the three benefits are, two of which we covered last week, the, the third will come later this morning, here they are. Benefits of Sabbath rest. 
Sabbath rest reminds us to always be in awe of God. Sometimes we lose that and we just sort of go through the motions. Two, it creates the optimal environment for true repentance, which in turn produces genuine joy. Difference between godly sorrow that leads to repentance and worldly sorrow that leads to death. And and Sabbath rest allows us to come face to face with our sin and, and, and confess it to the Lord. And third, it encourages us to embrace Christ-like humility, thus elevating us to a special place in kingdom service. I think if I were doing it now, I would just say in kingdom, in the kingdom, a special place in the kingdom. These points are connected with the gospel, though I admit that I, I see that much more clearly now than I did when I first chose them. Uh, we'll talk about that later. Perhaps a more fundamental question is, are we supposed to keep the Sabbath in these New Testament days? And, and if we are, is the Sabbath on Saturday or Sunday? It used to be Saturday for the Jews. We meet together on Sunday, so, so which is it? We've thought about that a bit over these past few weeks, but I read something this week that might be helpful for us. This, this is written by Kevin DeYoung um, in his book, The Good News We Almost Forgot. Rediscovering the Gospel in a 16th Century Catechism. The catechism to which he is referring is the Heidelberg Catechism, first published in 1563. Without taking the time to explain all about this book, what it's for, it's divided up into 52 weeks, questions from the Heidelberg Catechism, one, one a week. It's sort of designed as a devotional book. And it's, a, it's an awesome book for, for individuals, for couples, for families to just think about the gospel as it was laid out in the Heidelberg Catechism. It it covers the basics very well, but there's plenty of meat for people who want to go deep. Kevin DeYoung says in this book, essentially, that what we've talked about for these last few weeks, that Sabbath is not only not commanded in the New Testament, but the idea of ceremonial observance of the Sabbath is, is, is abolished in the New Testament. We don't do that anymore. We don't observe it in the same way. Jesus was constantly challenging the Pharisees of their practices of the Sabbath, and he, he actually provoked them by the things that he did. And they would accuse him, you're breaking the Sabbath. And he's essentially saying, you've missed the whole point of the Sabbath. Sabbath was... Made for man, not the other way around. Man is not made to serve the Sabbath. God did this for your benefit. And you are missing it. Uh, Romans 14.5 says that it's okay if you observe it. It's okay if you don't observe it one day above other days. Just be persuaded in your own mind. That's the big deal. Nonetheless, the early New Testament church, the leaders of the church, and, and the church as a whole just settled quickly into making Sunday sort of the new Sabbath. It's the Lord's Day. It's the first day of the week, the day on which Jesus rose from the dead, conquering death and making eternal life possible. On that day, on Sunday, the church said, we're going to apply a lot of the principles that were in place in the Old Testament as commands in these New Testament days. They did so much more in principle than in command. So how are we to approach the Sabbath? Kevin DeYoung says this well. Look at what he says. By my reckoning, the ceremonial aspect of the Sabbath has been abolished. 
The Mosaic Covenant was meant to reinforce the creation principle that we must rest from our labors and trust in God. That principle is what we find fulfilled in Christ. Having said that, I believe certain principles of the Sabbath rest remain and seem to have been quickly appropriated on the Lord's day. All right, let's continue with the Young's thoughts. Personally, I prefer the simple approach laid out in the Heidelberg Catechism. Catechism, go to church on the festive day of rest and cease from our evil ways every day of the week. That's one thing really we haven't talked too much. Maybe you've, it's come up in your home groups and if, if it hasn't this far, thus far, let it come up this week where you talk about the fact that, that the Sabbath was a day of festivity. So it, it was a day of uh, 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 with a festive spirit attached to it. It was joy. Now, the repentance part brings joy. But God wants us to be glad in our hearts because of our relationship with Him. So go to church on the festive day of rest and cease from our evil ways every day of the week. De Young says, my view is somewhere between the fourth commandment doesn't apply anymore and Sunday is the new Sabbath day. This position has the advantage of being in the middle of the road, which of course has the disadvantage of upsetting people on both sides of the road. Close quote. And it, indeed, there's a lot in scripture like that. Sometimes I just find myself right in the middle of a position and people on both sides of that position are upset. But I really do think that it's kind of, because scripture is not... As clear as we want it to be in some places. And so we have to just trust God when it's, when it's not made clear that it's bigger than we are. Well, I agree with DeYoung and I, I'm going to guess that most, if not all of you, will agree also. We don't have to keep the Sabbath. But we get to apply the principles of Sabbath in this beautiful story that God is continuing to write. A story that we're thinking about as the 29th chapter of Acts. It never ends. This story of God, well, it doesn't end until Jesus comes back. Then it does. But until then, the story is continuing to be written. I was talking to my pastor friend Jimmy this past week, and uh, I, I, I started to say, you benefit from my friend Jimmy and Dave and Denton more than you know. We, we spend a lot of time talking about gospel truth. And, and, and we were talking this week about how Sabbath Rest and the gospel really are entwined. In fact, Jimmy's the one that reminded me of this book by DeYoung. I had it already, but I had not read that about the Sabbath. And I, I, I went to it and, and thought, that's just a very concise, precise way of saying uh, what I'm hoping to communicate. But as we were talking about the gospel and Sabbath rest, Jimmy said, I am so grateful that God has led us back to the gospel, that we've recaptured the gospel in our day. What? Where did the gospel go? I mean, hasn't it always been here? I mean, I, I, I really respect my, my brother's understanding of Scripture, but look, ever since Pentecost, the gospel has always been here, right? Well, yes. But the full understanding of the gospel has been missing in many periods of, of the church, at least for certain periods until it's rediscovered 
and recaptured, and that's exactly what happened to a large portion of the evangelical church in the last century. Not all of the church, but at least part of it. The plan of salvation has always been in play. But to understand the gospel in its fullness, not so. The tides are changing, though, and I agree with my brother Jimmy. I'm so thankful that the, that the evangelical church has a renewed focus on the gospel. So what is the gospel? what's the connection with the Sabbath rest? First of all, our definition of the gospel is this. You've seen it many times. The just and gracious God of the universe, in response to hopelessly sinful people, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life that we can't, to bear his wrath against sin on the cross, and to show his power over sin in the resurrection so that all who respond to the Holy Spirit's call to repent and believe in Jesus will be reconciled to God forever. I doubt seriously you understood all of that when you placed your faith in Christ, when you trusted Jesus, when the Lord called you to himself. I doubt you got all of that. But every believer begins to understand this as it goes along. You know enough to, to cry out to Jesus as your only hope for heaven. But as you grow as a Christian and in understanding of Scripture, this, this understanding of the gospel continues to grow. Well, honestly, when you think about it, there's another step in this definition that could be added. It's when a person yields to the Holy Spirit, the life of Christ shines through that person. So the gospel doesn't end at the moment we're saved. We continue to walk in the, in the truth, of the, in the light of the truth of the gospel all through our lives. And while Jesus lives in us, once we belong to Jesus, when, once we belong to him, Adam also lives in us. Eve also lives in us, that first couple that, that sinned against God. And so while we, we want to go over here with the Lord, we're, we're finding ourselves dragged back to where we started. We're doing things that we despise. We hate them, but we want to be over here. But we... And so we look for a solution, and the solution is the gospel. We repent of our sin and put our trust in Jesus to bring about gospel change in our lives with Jesus being the one living through us. If the gospel is in all of Scripture, and if we need to be, if, if the gospel needs to be a part of our everyday lives, we can think of it in terms of a circle or, or, or a cycle. And, and we can think about along the lines of the, the Scripture that we have discovered in our study, creation, fall, redemption, and the promise of restoration. Just as when we come to Christ, we acknowledge our sin before him, we repent, we turn from ourselves to the Lord, and we find salvation in Jesus, we need to come back to him after we belong to him when we sin and we fail. Now, we don't come back to him for salvation. Once we belong to Jesus, we will always belong to him. The gospel tells us that there's nothing we can do Nothing we can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. Only just fall on Jesus. And if we have fallen on Jesus, if we have trusted in Him, when you think about it, 
And look, some of you may have believed this in the past. You may believe it now. And I do not mean to, to make light of this. I know you may be struggling with some of this. Really, when you think about it, it's, it, it's ludicrous almost to think that Jesus saved me, but I've got to keep it up. Look, we got no more hope of keeping it up than we had of getting it in the first place. No more. So that's where the gospel has to be in our lives every day. The New Testament makes it painfully clear that the old man still resides in us and that we are going to sin until the day that we die. First John says, if we say that we have not sinned, we make him to be a liar and the truth is not in us. We will sin till the day that we die. Since it's God's design for us to be constantly made, being made more and more into the image of Christ, and since the old man lives in us and we mess it up, we need to repent and ask God for forgiveness. And we need to ask Him to forgive us with gratitude for what He's done for us through Jesus. And then say, Lord, make me more and more like Him. It's easy to get confused about how this life in Jesus ultimately works. We, um, we tend to think, and, and, and rightly so, I mean, there's, there's biblical reasons that we think this, but we think of the Christian life as like this. You know, we're making progress. We're moving over here. And if I could do it, you know, I would, it's really like this. You know, we're moving up. It's like you, we're, we're moving on up in our, in our Christian walk with the Lord. That's understandable since there are verses like 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul said to the church in Corinth, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Isn't this interesting? Paul calls these Corinthians infants in Christ. Listen, these guys had more trouble than anybody you know that calls themselves a Christian just about. You, and he says, you're infants in Christ. He said, you're in Christ, you're in Jesus. You've got the salvation part, but you have not progressed. You're still a baby. What's wrong? I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you weren't ready for it. And even now you're not Yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. So progress is expected in the life of a believer. And understanding Scripture is a major component of maturity. It's certainly a, a significant evidence of maturity. The writer of Hebrews says pretty much the same thing in chapter 5. When he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice, constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Maturity is expected of all those who follow Jesus, all who belong to Jesus. And, and, and the way one handles the word will go a long way in determining how mature we, we are and become. God expects us to be getting into the book and learning more and more all the time. 
of course, knowledge of Scripture is useless if we don't apply, if we're not obedient to God's Word and the power of the Spirit. In fact, it could be worse even. Because we're claiming to know God and yet there's this um, disconnect between what we know and how we live. And people recognize that. So here's the way that many people view the Christian life. It's much like stair steps. And the journey begins at salvation, at the time of trust in Jesus. And then we begin to move upward, taking steps towards spiritual maturity. That is indeed the way that it is. It's, it's, it's like this. There's more to it than this, but it's like this. One of the first evidences of a new relationship with the Lord is a hunger for the truth of His Word. I, I, I've seen that in many of you in this last couple of years where some of you are just ravenous for the truth of the Word. You can't get enough. You find yourself up late at night reading, studying, asking questions. I want to know more and more and more about Scripture. As you begin to learn and understand Scripture, you start to understand what's expected of a Christ follower. So you add new spiritual disciplines, such as prayer and, 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 and giving, and your heart grows toward helping others. And, and before you know it, you're making disciples. You're not doing it intentionally, but you're making disciples because you're telling other people what you've learned, and you want them to know the same thing that you know. It's likely going to be later in your walk that you're going to have trouble pouring into other people's lives because Satan is quite effective. Once that passion begins to subside a little bit, we start focusing where we always had before on ourselves. But if we stay in the Word, this helps us to keep moving, to keep making progress. As you add spiritual disciplines, and it may be early in your Christian walk, it may be late, it may be because of these that you come to Christ, but, but, but you begin to struggle with trials. And they're no fun, but the Lord uses them to strengthen you and to make you more like Jesus. Look, if we're going to be like Jesus, it's going to require suffering. There's no way around it. This life, there's suffering in this life just because of the fact we're fallen, men and women. But then there's, there's the added component of Satan hating us and talking to God and saying, Hey, seen Diane McLaughlin? You've protected her like nobody's business. Let me at her. Just let me at her for a little bit. That's the way it... it you know, when people talk about, well, my suffering is physical, so it doesn't count because I'm not suffering for the gospel. You don't know. You don't know what's going on in heaven that relates to your suffering. Have no idea. So... We begin to become more like Jesus through trials. And if we keep our, our hearts and our heads where they see it should be, we'll, we'll begin to dine regularly on the meat of the Word. Not just milk. We, we begin to absorb meat of the Word. And thus we become one who teaches others whether we do so formally or not. Once again, how many times have I said this? I think three or four. Let me say it one more time. One of the clearest ways to discern maturity in a believer is this understanding and application of the Word. Not just knowledge, but application as well. But certainly knowledge, you can't apply what you don't know. And sometimes people apply the Word wrong. You have to know it before you really begin to apply it. And it's, don't feel like, oh, I could never. Yes, you can. 
You just got to be, you got to be committed to get in there. It's got to be as important to you as, you know, that particular show that you like or that team that you follow or those sales that you look for or whatever it is, you know, whatever it is that we, we're, we're pursuing. So there's much to be commended to this approach to spiritual growth. But if spiritual growth is always upward and outward like a good stock market, like a good stock market report, then, then, then what of the gospel that is more cyclical? You know, it, kind of, it keeps coming back around. Try as we may, our spiritual growth is, is consistently interrupted. It's like, you know, we're going and then boom! And then next thing, we're on the ground and, and, and we feel like we've started all over again or even worse than we were. Well, that's your sensitivity to sin growing. It's not a bad thing. That's why the gospel has to undergird and overlay everything that we do in this Christian life. So the sequential stair-step approach to spiritual growth is not wrong. It's not harmful. It's just the way that things go. But the gospel has to be there all along the way. The way life is designed in general and in the spiritual realm in particular, there should always be an accumulation of knowledge and and also intentional application to what we know. But for the Christian, the gospel has to be at the center of all that we do. The temptation for many, though, is to recognize the gospel in the early days when we come to Jesus. Okay, I'm, I've repented, and, and, and then we start to try to manage this life that God has given us. And when that happens, we plateau. Now, we're adding the forms of maturity. We're looking to, to many people like, this person's got it all together. But in, in essence, we have become Christian Pharisees as mutually exclusive as those terms seem to be. That's what the Pharisees did. At one time they were sincerely obeying the word, but then the lifestyle that the word called for became an idol. They didn't recognize that I do what I do in obedience to the Lord because I'm just so grateful that he has forgiven me a a wretched Worthy of hell, sinner. And the clo- in fact, the closer we get to Jesus, the, the more we realize how bad we are. But when you start saying, all right, thank you, Lord, I needed that. Thank you for putting me on my feet. Now it's up to me, and I'm going to do what I need to do. So we start walking, but we've stopped growing. So this is what my friend Jimmy meant when he said that he's so thankful that the Lord has brought the gospel back front and center in the church's thinking and proclamation. So it still doesn't answer how does Sabbath rest relate to the gospel. The answer, I think, is that without a regularly scheduled time, time for perspective, the consistency consistently brings us back to the gospel, we are going to always trend toward legalism. We just do. We just do. It's up to me. It's up to me. And the gospel says, 
let me explain why it's not up to you. There's nothing in you that can do what I require of you. There was one person who did it. That's our definition of the gospel. Jesus lived the life that we could not live. He died the death that we were incapable or unqualified to die so that we might live. Now, when he lives through us, it's accomplished in the way that he wants it to happen. When we live for him, my goodness, we get in trouble very quickly because we start trying to manage it, trying to do it. And when we take time for Sabbath rest, we are consistently brought back to the gospel. And the three benefits that we've been considering point us back to the gospel. During Sabbath rest, we sit in awe of our Creator. <laughs> we're, just, we're just in awe of it. Everything comes into perspective. I may be the big man in my particular, or the big woman... <clears throat> No, I don't mean it that way. Uh, I may be the important person, you know, in my sphere of influence. When we come before the creator God of the universe, we're humbled. And we sit in awe of him that he, he would love me and care for me. And since we, we tend to see our sin more clearly when we're quiet, we... Ask the Lord to give us godly sorrow rather than worldly sorrow, and we repent. And as our focus stays on Jesus, we ask God to give us that Christ-like humility which prepares us to serve and glorify God so that we can get back into the mission that Jesus gave us full steam ahead. And that, ladies and gentlemen concludes the longest introduction in sermon-making history, or at least one of them anyway. Our text this morning is Philippians 2, 5 to 8. Would you stand as we read this together? L- let me give the context for this. Um, the church at Philippi was an awesome church. But you know, they got, they, 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 they got petty, as we, as we are wont to do. And they were just arguing, fussing with each other about senseless, silly stuff. And, and Paul said, look, look, you've got a mission that Jesus has given. Put it all aside. And then he's saying two things here. Again, we don't know what he's saying, but, but both could very well be in play because Scripture is so much bigger oftentimes. Either he's saying we have been given the mind of Christ because of our association with, with him, we already have it. Or he could be saying... Jesus had this mind, follow his example. Either way works. In, in fact, most likely it's the larger meaning. It's stated in such a way that it encompasses it all. But notice that this mind of Christ is among you. It's not just yours alone. It, it, it matters in how you relate to one another. So, verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who? Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held on to. But made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death 
even death on a cross. Let's pray. Father, we uh, find ourselves time and again coming back to the cross. And while there is so much joy in this Christian life, the promise of full restoration is down the road. And in this time that we serve you because of what Jesus has done for us, may we do so in the power of the Spirit. May we do so with the full understanding of the gospel, filling our hearts, consistently ringing in our ears, and impacting us in every way. Make us more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks, and be seated. I'm counting on the fact that by now you recognize the benefit of just taking Sabbath rest, whether it be on Sunday, which is the best day for for most of you. It's difficult for me to consider this a day of rest. But it, it is for most of you, it's the best day. Part of that is corporate worship. So I'm counting on you understanding whether it's on Sunday or whether it's slices of time here or there. And also the the need for a quiet time every day. Sabbath rest has the idea, carries a little more extended time. It's certainly best for you to rest from your labor on one day of the week if it's at all possible. And not just the labor that brings you money or that puts you in the place that God is fulfills the responsibilities that God has put you in, in the place that he has given to you. But other peripheral labors, that's what's so hard, isn't it? Most of the time, a day off is a, is, is a day to, you know, and cleaning and, and catching up bills and everything else. So hopefully we can move in that direction funny I was you know over, coming over here I was telling Allison what my plans are for the rest of the day and I'm telling you every minute's planned out and I said kind of strange isn't it she said well today is not the Sabbath for you but it is for her and she's got as many plans as I do and I've got plans on my day off you know I mean we just we're, we're driven that way in America we are look we need to move in this direction not that we're there But above all, rest from your good works and trust in Christ. That's what the Sabbath, more than anything else, the idea is rest from your good works, trust in Christ. And when you sit at the foot of Jesus, contemplate his humility. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You know, in Philippi, as I said, they were struggling with unity. Everybody was looking out, not everybody, but many were looking out for number one. And how can you form a cohesive group that, that, that is intent on a particular mission when everybody's struggling to maintain his or her place? You know, I've got my spot. I, I, I can't, you can't encroach on that. And how dare you? And what you... Paul said, look at Jesus. Think about Jesus. His mind is already yours. Use it. When Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, he wasn't saying that he was like God. I've got two or three messages on this from 
13 years, and I can get one or two of them for you. It's a long explanation. He wasn't saying that Jesus was like God. He was saying that He is God. He said in the next breath, Jesus didn't cling to the privileges of glory that, that were rightfully His. But he followed the Father's plan and humbled himself to become a human being. And he came here as a servant, not as a king. You know, you hear people say, you can take my gun away when you pry it from my cold, dead fingers. You know, that's silly. I, I, I like the Second Amendment, but I'm never going to say anything like that because I don't have a gun in the first place. And it's okay if you do. That's fine. You're passionate about it. That's good. But... See, that's what Jesus was saying. He's not like that. He didn't hang on to it. He didn't, he, he didn't come like this with his... Yeah. He willingly came as a servant. And with every breath that he took, Jesus was obedient to the Father. The ultimate step of obedience, of course, was his willingness to give himself up for death. And, and not just any death, but death on a cross. Now, in the first place, the cross was easily one of the most humiliating and excruciating forms of execution ever devised. I, I've said this lots. I'm, I'm still trying to work this out in my mind. Pete and I were talking about this this morning. I, I do believe there's a difference between humiliation and, and humility. I, I read about the self-humiliation of Christ. I think the right word is given here. It's humility. It was the intent of the Roman government to humiliate Jesus and other prisoners. But you're only humiliated if you allow yourself to be. Humility is a state of mind that comes with strength recognizing this is unjust, but I yield myself to the Father. This awful death, of course, included far more than just this, this terrible way to die. Jesus bore the weight of our sin in His body. And His Father turned His back on Jesus so that our sins might be forgiven when we repent and we believe in Him. He begged the Father before he went to the cross for another way. Please, God. Please, Father. Isn't there some other way? No? Okay. I submit. That's, that's not sin. I, I don't know where you, you know, you get disappointed with yourself all the time. That's, to, to be disappointed in yourself is to have believed in yourself. Look, Jesus did not sin when he said, please let there be another way. But he, he absolutely obeyed when he said, okay, there is no other way. I, I'll do this. Your will be done. And as he exhaled his last breath, he said, expressed ultimate trust, saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. Humility and trust go together, don't you know? 
When we turn our attention on Jesus' humility, especially when we do so, as we take time to absorb the implications of Jesus' utter trust in the Father on the cross, in the face of the cruelest of injustices, when we take time to to, to absorb that, we are called to Christ-like humility. And that brings a kingdom perspective when life doesn't go our way. When someone criticizes us or unfairly accuses us of wrong motives of poor judgment, we submit to the Father with Christ-like humility rather than defending ourselves every time. There's a time to say what you need to say. But there are times when you just need to be quiet. Look, some of you know. I'm in the wrong job if I can't handle criticism, but I don't handle it sometimes. It's difficult. Some of you know that. So I'm learning this. I'm growing in this area. And it is stunning to me the things that that I thought were just no way a, a, a good mark for me in my life. God has brought beautiful things out of it. And he's brought a different spirit into my heart. And I'm, it's just it's, it's this gospel thing along this process of moving along. So we don't always have to defend ourselves every time someone says something that hurts us or angers us. When we're called into the boss's office to hear bad news about our job, we respond with humility and trust rather than pride-induced humiliation. Anger, defensiveness. When the doctor gives us bad news, we remember this is God's story. And we're grateful that he has included us in it. And that somehow he's going to use this to glorify himself. And of course, all of these responses are quite easy when you trust Christ like you should. Not at all. Not at all. You may be more like Jesus than anybody on the earth. And when, you, when it comes time, you're going to say, God, is there no other way? It's okay to say that. That's not a lack of trust. But when he says no, and it takes time to process it. And when he says no, it's time to say, okay, God. I submit. I yield. I trust And and, and unless we're consistently turning to the cross, you know what we're going to do? We're going to do whatever it takes to protect ourselves. Because self-preservation is a natural instinct, and God gave it to us for a reason, or He uses it anyway. Let's put it that way. He uses it in this fallen world. It's not always wrong to protect. That's not the point. But the point is, at some place, we have to say, okay, God, I trust you. I don't get why I struggle with these emotional issues. I don't get why nobody in my family had this illness and yet I have it. Look, I had all this written out and I've got it all in my heart and mind when I think about all that so many of you are going through. I'm going through some stuff, but it's not on the same level. But I am getting old, I'm telling you. And every day brings, it's a new adventure, you know, when you're old. But it ain't the kind of adventure you're looking for, you know. It ain't, what's his name, Ferris Bueller's Day Off or whatever. You know, it's not that kind of adventure. 
I've never seen the movie, by the way, if I even said it right. So, um, And then I got, a, I got, a, I got, a, got an email from, from Lynn last night saying, I'm getting sicker, and uh, in about two weeks, they're going to take out all of my colon and then try to restructure, and, and I'm in trouble, essentially, she's saying. Please pray that I won't be scared and that I will trust God. I, I do hope Lynn doesn't matter mind me saying that. I don't think she would. It just hit by me. Just think about Lynn. <laughs> do you know anybody better? And she's so young. And Noah this week, tumor in the knee. Noah! You know what? When life doesn't make sense, we need to be like Jesus. He cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He never got an answer. He knew he was fulfilling the mission that God gave him. What he knew didn't had restricted himself from, no, I don't know. Maybe he knew it all, but I'm telling you, he cried out, I don't get this. And yet he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. We're not owed an answer either. Be careful about telling someone or yourself that if you lose a job, something better will come along. It might, very likely will, but it doesn't have to. We don't always get well. And when it's sooner rather than later, we're called to trust at the highest levels. Think about how young Jonah is. Struggling with that MS, very likely, other issues. Life doesn't have to make sense. We do have to trust the Father, though, with Christ-like humility if we hope to be where He intends for us to be. Where is that? Oddly enough, at an exalted place in the kingdom. Just like there's a principle about Sabbath rest, there's another biblical principle in play here. Pride brings destruction. Humility brings exaltation. Not a prideful exaltation, of course, or you're right back where you started. You know, I mean, so it's that circle thing again. But God's favor is on you when you're humble, especially in the face of suffering. God's favor is on you whether anybody else recognizes it or not. And that's what's so hard. When nobody else recognizes, when nobody's sorry for you, when nobody, you know... To say God's favor is on me. I'm just being humble. It's likely that people will recognize God's favor on you, but understanding our exaltation gets complicated. Right after this incredible passage about Jesus' humility, we see his exaltation. Therefore, 
God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus was restored to his previous glory, just as he had prayed in John 17. Lord, when I've done this thing, give me the glory that I had before when I was with you. And every single living being in the entire universe will acknowledge him as Lord over all and the Father will be glorified. Now, obviously, we're not expecting this kind of exaltation. We're not going to become God's rulers of planets. We will rule. It's part of God's plan. I don't know how that works either. But when we humble ourselves in trust and obedience to to the Lord, there is a principle in play. James 4, 6, and 10. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Peter says pretty much the same thing. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. You notice the connection between humility and trust here. He goes on to talk about trials that just grow in scope, it seems like. But there's connection between humility, trust, and the Lord's exaltation of us. Sometimes it seems more easy to be humble when things are going our way. But it's much more difficult when all is against us. But as we trust God to give us Christ-like humility, not discouragement or frustration, even when it seems justified, then He will exalt us. What does that mean? I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know, but that's the point, isn't it? Don't focus on the exaltation. Focus on the humility. Let God do what He's going to do. You just trust Him. And His will will be accomplished in your life. And His will in your life is way, way better than your will in your life. Let's pray.